Well, good morning, everyone. And again, as Simon um, said just a moment ago, if you're visiting with us this morning, a very special welcome. It's great to have you with us. If you'd like to open your Bibles, please, to Job chapter 19. Uh, normally, our custom at Cornerstone is we'll have a Bible reading from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. But today is a very, very special day because not only is it Easter, but in many ways we come to the lowest point in the book of Job. And at this very, very low point, we see one of the most brilliant promises of the gospel in all of Scripture, thousands of years before it actually occurred. Uh, and so I'm going to be reading from Job chapter 19, from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry, I have been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants count me a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer. Though I beg him with my own mouth, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped with only the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives 
and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you this morning, we come fearing and trembling because you are the true and living God. You are the one in whom all things is in your hands. You are the one who has defeated death itself. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word this morning. We pray that you would be with me as I speak, that both what I say and how I say it would be what you would say and how you would say it. Father, bless us. Open our ears that we would hear your voice speaking to us through your word. Bless us, we pray. Make us, Lord, in no doubt that we have met with you and that we are in the presence of the living God. And that more than that, Lord, we would know your love for us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago now, there was a horrific shooting at a Christian school in the United States. A transgender gunman, who used to be a female student at the school, tragically killed six people. Three of them were adults in their 60s, and three were children all under the age of 10, and they were murdered. One of the students was the daughter of the local Presbyterian minister who was connected to the school, and his name is Chad Scruggs. If you take a look up the screen, thanks Ezekiel, you'll see a picture of them as a family which was taken a few weeks ago. To add to the horror of the situation, there are reports that this little girl was deliberately targeted because she was the pastor's daughter. Now, the manifesto, thanks Ezekiel, we, uh, which were outlined the full extent of what the person had planned to do, has yet to be released by the police. But what we do know, though, is that the school principal... Uh, if she had not have rushed towards the gunman, then many more children and staff would have been killed. In the process of rushing towards the gunman as they were opening fire, she too tragically lost her life. What an amazing thing to think of when you go to school next term. That something like that could happen. Three weeks before... The transgender shooting occurred, though Reverend Scuggs said this in a sermon. I've printed it out for you on the front of your corner posts. Uh, if you could just turn over to it now, I'd like to read aloud what he himself said in his sermon. Because it's not only incredibly pertinent as to what he himself would very soon have to endure, 
But it also beautifully captures the truth of the Easter message. He said this, When you read the story of Lazarus this week and next week, the story of his death, especially when you heard about Jesus delaying so that Lazarus would die, as a reader, did that shatter your faith as a Christian? I'm going to guess that it didn't, and that's probably because of two reasons. The first is obvious, because Lazarus was not a close friend of yours. He wasn't your brother, and you were not personally affected by Jesus' delay by his death. But here's a more likely reason. You as the reader knew how the story would end. You see, you had an understanding of the story which all the other characters in the story at that time lacked. You knew that even though Jesus delayed, the ending was going to be a happy one. And I would suggest to you that even if Martha and Mary read this story even years later, the middle of the story is very different if you already know the ending. Isn't that true? Church, you know the ending. You know the ending. You have the word of promise. You have the eyewitness accounts of a better resurrection. You have the gift of the Spirit. And you know enough to trust the seemingly mysterious delays of God to know that God's timing is never wrong. That it is always held together by his unceasing perfect love for his church in the revelation of his glory. He then went on to say this. Now saying that, I've got to point this out. Who in this story knew the ending better than anyone? The Sunday school answer is the right one here. It's Jesus. The whole time Jesus knew how the whole thing would go down. And one of the most remarkable things about this story, it always gets me, is that knowing exactly what he is going to do, Jesus sat down and does what? He weeps. And then Reverend Scruggs goes on to say this. He says, a strong confidence in the end of the story does not undo or justify the absence of grief in the middle. A mature faith adds its tears to the sadness in our world. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, all the while not losing confidence in how that sadness will eventually be overcome in him. I don't think many of us could fully comprehend the heartache and the grief that Reverend Scruggs and his family are feeling right now. It's just unimaginable, really. But what he is saying here is totally true. Once you know how the story ends, everything changes. Whether it's the story of Job and everything he goes through, 
or whether it's the ultimate story of Jesus and his death and resurrection, the victory which he will achieve once and for all when he conquers the grave. Because we know the ending, we can endure whatever comes our way until the end arrives. Yes? The book of Job is a classic case in point. As we've come to appreciate, some of us granted more quickly than others, Job is a really, really long book. It's comprised of no less than 42 chapters. And many of the speeches go round and round, arguing pretty much the same thing, but from a slightly different perspective. I don't think we feel the full weight of what they're saying, though, because we know how the story ends. We know that in the end, Job is going to be fully restored. But everything which goes on before Job is vindicated, though, is absolutely horrific. You know, life can just all disintegrate like that. A car careens off the road into a, into a railing and you're left paralysed. All of a sudden, a germ enters your body and you're sick. Somebody comes home and drops an emotional bombshell of you of relational infidelity. But the trauma goes on for years, doesn't it? It's often the words that people say that are the most painful. It's what it's like for Job. These speeches are basically a form of psychological terror or torture, where each one of his three friends surround the living carcass of Job's body like vultures. And they start to pick away at his flesh, even while he's still breathing and moving. See, vultures don't necessarily wait until the animal dies before they start to eat them. They simply start with their victim when their victim no longer has the strength to fully defend themselves. And that's precisely what Job's friend, Bildad, does here in chapter 18, which John I read to us. He terrifies Job with an awful description regarding what happens to those who are under God's judgment where death itself is described as this ravenous monster who devours its prey with this insatiable appetite. That's what Job's three friends are saying with increasing intensity is going to happen to him. And as you would have already seen, they don't even speak to him directly. Instead, they talk about him mostly or about his situation in the third person. They have so little compassion and care for Job that they won't even address his concerns directly. Let me just read to you again what Bildad says from verses 5 to 11 of chapter 18. If you still have your Bibles open, have a look at this with me. I know it's all very doom and gloom, but you have to remember that this is what Job's friends are saying is going to happen to him. They're saying that Job's suffering is a result of God's curse. Bildad says in verse 5, The lamp of the wicked is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. The light of his tent becomes dark. The lamp beside him goes out. The vigour of his step is weakened. His own schemes throw him down. His feet thrust him into a net and he wanders into its mesh. 
A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Terrors startle him on every side and dog his every step. This is what Bildad says to his friend who has just lost all of his wealth, all of his children, and is suffering what everyone assumes to be a sickness which is going to, in the end, result in his death. It's what Christopher Ashe perceptively describes as, though, the scandal of redemptive suffering. That someone who is righteous should ever experience unjust suffering, let alone that it could somehow or other be part of the sovereign plan of God. Because according to the transactional theology of Bildad and his two friends, the wicked are always punished and the righteous are always rewarded. It's like God is this cosmic slot machine or pokey. Good works go in, blessing comes out. Sin goes in, cursing comes out. What we learn through the cross, though, especially at Easter, is that that is not always the case. Indeed, at the very heart of the gospel message is that the one and only righteous and innocent man has suffered for the guilty, sinful ones in our place. He has taken upon himself the condemnation of our sins. And so the example of both Job and even more perfectly Jesus refutes the underlying premise of this transactional theology. Bildad goes on in verses 12 to 14, though, to twist the knife in even further. He says, Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away parts of his flesh. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. He is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors. Bildad is saying that disaster wants to devour Job like a ravenous beast or even demon seeks to devour its prey. How difficult that must have been for Job to hear, let alone endure. To hear that you're, the only reason that you're suffering is because you deserve it. And there is no hope of you ever being rescued. As one of the thieves said to Jesus when he was dying on the cross, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. What Bildad is saying is actually a vivid and accurate description of what the terrors of death are like. And they're like that for each and every one of us. The great enemy which one day every single one of us is going to have to face. Bildad says at the end of the chapter, men of the West are appalled at his fate. Men of the East are seized with horror. Surely such is the dwelling of an evil man. Such is the place of one who knows not God. That is a reality which is rightly to be feared. Because death is the destiny of every man. And God's word says the living should take this to heart. 
It might not be the message you wanted to hear this morning when you came to church, but God's saying it's the message you needed to hear. It's also the reason why we do all that we can, I think, as people to actually avoid it. Or as they say in hospitals now in Britain, no longer is a patient died, but there was a negative patient outcome. <laughs> Such is our wanting to avoid any even talk of death. Such is the despair of death as so eloquently described by Bildad in chapter 18. Job responds though in chapter 19 with the hope of resurrection. But just before we get to that though, Job wrestles with the injustice or the seemingly injustice of his situation. And in particular, that because his suffering is undeserved, then God himself must be unjust. Now we have to remember that even though Job is not suffering because he sinned, that doesn't mean that he doesn't sin in response to his suffering. For not everything Job says is right. And at the end of the book, Job will actually repent of many of the things that he has said about God. One of the things he says which are wrong is found in verses 6 and 7. He says, know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. We know that that's not true. God has actually put a hedge around him, protecting him from even worse disasters from the Satan. Though I cry, I have been wronged. I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. That's how life can definitely seem at various times, can't it? A tragedy occurs and it can feel like God has left us. We cry out to him in, in prayer and it feels like the heavens are like brass. That our prayer just bounces back at us. One can only imagine how Pastor Scruggs and his family must feel at the loss of their young child. And they were not the only ones to obviously suffer. There were five other families who also lost a daughter or a husband or a wife or a grandparent. I can't even begin to imagine the grief and pain of what those families are feeling right now. Apparently, one of the former chaplains at the school reached out to Pastor Scruggs and he responded, Pastor Scruggs that is, via a text message simply saying this, God is good. What an amazing example and model of Christian faith. That in the midst of pain and suffering, where it's godly and right to grieve, to still affirm one's trust in God's goodness. In his commentary on the book of Job, Christopher Ashe tells the story of a young man named Glenn Chambers. He was a young Christian man from New York whose lifelong dream it was to serve the Lord on the mission field. When at last the opportunity came, he was at the airport, and as every good son does, he thought he'd write his mum a letter. All he could find to write on, though, was a scrap of newspaper uh, with the word Y printed in large black type on the back. He thought, oh, well, this will have to do. He wrote his mum a quick message, posted it off to her from the airport. 
That very night, though, his airplane crashed into a mountain in Colombia and he was killed. Christopher Ash writes this. When his mother opened the letter a couple of days later, that question shouted at her from the page, why? Why did my son die? Especially when he dedicated himself to serving the Lord. Why does the Lord allow terrible tragedies like this to occur? Christopher Ash then goes on to talk about all of the different scenarios we ourselves face and we're tempted to ask precisely the same question. Why have I got this sickness? Why do I have this estranged relationship? Why do I have this difficult job? Why don't I have my heart's deepest desire and longing? Why am I even still alive? Why? 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 Christopher Ash says, or to put all of these questions another way, what was going on in heaven to make this happen? Whose purpose was it, if there was a purpose? By whose doing, by whose agency did this thing happen? Whose hand did this? Or to put it most sharply, is God for me or against me? What kind of God does what he did to Job, trapping a believer in a prison of suffering, loneliness, pain or misery? These are the questions Job faces and they're also the questions which we will all face at one point or another. And it's really important to stop and to take stock of really who is responsible for our suffering. Because it's easy to misdiagnose our circumstances. You see, Job cries out in verse 21, Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? You see, Job mistakenly believes it is the hand of God which has caused all of these tragedies to occur. But we as the reader know that that is actually not the case. Back in chapter 1, Satan said to the Lord, Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. But then in the very next verse we read, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. And exactly the same thing occurs again in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Once again, Christopher Ash makes the point. So whose uh, are the monstrous hands that have attacked Job and ripped at him and isolated him and made his life a misery? Answer, the hands of the enemy, the Satan, acting with the permission of God and constrained by the strict limits given by God. He says, this is a very important insight. The Satan is fond of disguise. He disguises himself as an angel of the light, we read in 2 Corinthians 11. And again and again in the book of Job, the Satan masquerades as the Lord and persuades Job that it is directly the Lord who has turned against him. And when the Roman soldiers blindfolded Jesus and hit him, who is it that struck you? Job cannot see the hand that is striking him. You see, it's important to remember, friends, 
that our battle is never against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. For there is a cosmic spiritual battle which we as Christians have become involved in. And like Job, we have no idea what is actually going on in the heavenly realms. All we know is that we have been called upon to trust him and to be faithful. To not give in to the temptation of cursing God, but continuing to trust him and praise his name. To respond like Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. To humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and to patiently wait for him to lift us up in due time. To say with Reverend Scruggs, God is good. And God is good all the time. Suddenly at the end of chapter 19 though, Job speaks more truly than he could have ever known. And this is why I didn't choose to have a New Testament reading this week. He looks forward in verses 23 to 27 to the day in which he will be finally vindicated. This often happens when we're in the midst of despair. The Lord comforts us with his presence and in so doing shows us that not only does he truly love us, but that he is also all that we need. In my previous congregation in Sydney, one of the elders I served with, who has since gone on to be with the Lord, told me about a time in his life when he was at rock bottom. He was working for the Department of Community Services, and as you can imagine, always challenging. But he himself faced the prospect of a, uh, that he'd contracted a terminal illness. And he said that at one particular time, he felt so down-hearted and alone that he felt like giving up. Now, this particular man was quite, you know, stoic and rational kind of a guy, and he wasn't really given to ecstatic experiences. But he said that as he sat in the living room praying, he was overwhelmed with a sense of the presence of God. And he started to tear up as he told me about it, even years after the event, because he said it was just so deeply moving and precious to him and so real. He said the whole experience was just overwhelming. That's precisely what the Lord in his infinite mercy does for the believer from time to time, doesn't he? He lifts up the countenance of those who are downcast. He gives us the grace, the strength and the encouragement to be able to keep on trusting in him and endure. Exactly at that moment when you feel like giving up. And in a similar kind of way, I think this is what must have happened to Job. Because what he says next in verse 23 and following has become some of the most incredible comfort for people in a similar situation to Job. In fact, one dear saint said to me this morning, this is my favourite passage in the whole book of Job. Don't muck it up. Because <laughs> it points to us the hope of the resurrection, which is to be ultimately found in the gospel. Look again what he says in verse 23. Oh, that my words 
were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. And then he goes on to gloriously declare, and notice that the fact that you're reading this now, Job got what he prayed for more than he could ever imagine. He didn't need it on rock. His words are in the Bible. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Now, some commentators want to water down what Job is saying here and say that the Redeemer that Job is speaking of might actually just be his own words. That the testimony you know, of his innocence will in the end act as some kind of divine witness and somehow or other vindicate him. That after all that has happened and you know, after he dies, that there will come a time in this type of interpretation where people go, oh no, Job was right. He was right all along. But the thing is, is that the Redeemer whom Job is speaking of him of here is none other than God himself. For here in the depths of his despair comes the most brilliant, shining ray of light. You know, in the Lord of the Rings, where you know all the dwarves are, are searching for jewels in the mountain, and at the deepest, darkest place in the mountain, they find the most precious gem of all, the Arkenstone. This is Job's Arkenstone. This is Job's hope. It's that God would defend him against God. And by the Holy Spirit, Job prophesies of a time when the Lord God Almighty will make all things new. When his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will rise again from the dead and he will act as our mediator, our advocate, and most of all, our saviour. And he will drive out all fear. There's this famous scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe where Aslan, you remember, is slain on the stone table and everything in the land of Narnia goes dark. It looks like the white witch has won because the lion Aslan has offered himself as a sacrifice in Edmund's place. And it looks like, it looks like he's been defeated. But as we all know, that's not the end of the story. Because as the morning of the next day breaks, so does the stone table upon which Aslan has been killed. It's an allusion to the very first Easter where Matthew tells us that Jesus died and gave up his spirit. And then the Gospel of Matthew says this, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. That's the great news of resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits of what will happen to everybody who believes in him. You see? This is the gospel hope which the words of Job ultimately point us to, to a time when we ourselves will be raised again from the dead. When we 
after our physical bodies have been destroyed, we'll see God in the flesh. Not just a spiritual vision. That is our great hope in and through Christ. Because he has gone before us. When Chad Scruggs was interviewed just hours after he had been informed that his daughter had been murdered, he said that he and his wife took comfort in the knowledge that she was safe in the arms of Jesus and that one day they would meet again. In his sermon from just a few weeks before the shooting, though, he said this. I think I printed it out for you on the bottom of your sermon outline so you can see it. He said, one last thing. What do you do if you're doubting the love of Jesus? Do you try and work it out through your circumstances? No, you don't read your circumstances and then read the love of Jesus. You read the love of Jesus towards your circumstances. If you are doubting his love for you, if you are struggling with his authority in the midst of sadness and confusion, let the cross speak to you again. Look there so that you might confidently say, see how he loves me. This is the one man given for me. That's the great truth which we need to hold on to, friends. Not just at Easter, but through all the ups and downs of life. Look how he loves me. This is the one man given for me. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? For nothing in all of creation can separate us from his love. Not disease, not disaster, and especially not death. Because through his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ has secured for us a sure and certain hope. Amen? As Job himself says, I will see him with my eyes, I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word this morning of a sure and certain hope that we no longer need to fear death because you have conquered it. You have sent your Son, the Righteous One, to suffer in our place. Lord, we thank you for uh, the truth of the gospel that this really happened as historical fact and that all of human history has been changed as a result. We've gone from BC before Christ to now AD in the year of our Lord because Jesus lives and he reigns in heaven. Lord, may this continue to be our comfort and our assurance and our hope. No matter what our circumstances are, Lord, give us the grace to see that you love us, that you are for us, for the one man has been given for me. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.